Chapter 6, Part 3 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. The Highest Point. While we ate such food as we had with us, chiefly sugar in one form or another, chocolate, mint cake, or acid drops, and best of all, raisins and prunes, we now had leisure to look about us. The summit of Everest, or what appeared to be the summit, I doubt if we saw the ultimate tip, lying back along the northeast ridge, was not impressive, and we were too near up under this ridge to add anything to former observations as to the nature of its obstacles. The view was necessarily restricted when Everest itself hid so much country. But it was a pleasure to look westwards across the broad north face and down it towards the Rongbuk Glacier. It was satisfactory to notice that the north peak which, though perceptibly below us, had still held, so to speak, a place in our circle when we started in the morning, this same Chongsi had now become a contemptible fellow beneath our notice. We saw his black plebeian head rising from the mists, mists that filled all the valleys, so that there was nothing in all the world as we looked from northeast to northwest but the great twins Jachung Kang and Cho Uyo, and even these, though they regarded us still from a station of equality, were actually inferior. The lesser of them is 26,000 feet, and we could clearly afford to despise him. The greater Cho Uyo we had to regard respectfully before we could be sure. His triangulated height is 26,870, whereas our aneroid was reading only 26,800. It seemed that we were looking over his head, but such appearances are deceptive. And we were glad to have the confirmation of the theodolite later proving that we had reached 26,985 feet, higher than Cho Uyo by 100 feet and more. The beneficent superiority with which we now regarded the whole world except Mount Everest no doubt helped us to swallow our luncheon, or was it dinner? A difficult matter, for our tongues were hanging out after so much exercise of breathing. We had no chance of finding a trickle here as one often may in the Blessed Alps, and medical opinion, which knew all about what was good for us, frowned upon the notion of alcoholic stimulant for a climber in distress at a high altitude. And so, very naturally, when one of us, be of good cheer, my friend, I won't give you away, produced from his pocket a flask of brandy, each of us took a little nip. I am glad to relate that the result was excellent. It is logically certain, therefore, that the brandy contained no alcohol. The non-alcoholic brandy, then, no doubt by reason of what it lacked, had an important spiritual effect. It gave us just the mental fillip which we required to pull ourselves together for the descent. Happily inspired by our medical comfort, I announced that I would take the lead. Norton and I changed places on the rope. I optimistically supposed that I should find an easier way down by a continuous snow slope to the west of the ridge. Somerville, also moved by inspiration, suggested that he should remain behind to make a sketch and hurry down our tracks to catch us up later. He says that I found it difficult to understand that he would only require a few minutes, 
and that I replied irritably. I can hardly believe that my tone just then was anything but suave, but I have no doubt I was glad to have him with us to be our sheet anchor, and particularly so a little later, for we were in difficulties almost at once. We found more snow on this new line, as I had supposed, but it was not to our liking. It lay not on a continuous slope, but covering a series of slabs and only too ready to slide off. We were obliged to work back to the ridge itself and follow it down in our morning's treks. At 4 p.m. we reached our camp, where Mooreshead was waiting. He was feeling perfectly well, he reported, and ready to come down with us to Camp 4. After collecting a few of our possessions, which we did not wish to abandon to the uncertain future, we roped up once more to continue our descent. So far, our pace going down had been highly satisfactory. In the Alps, one usually expects to descend on easy ground twice as fast as one would go up. But we had divided our time of ascent by four, and in an hour and a half had come down 2,000 feet. Under normal conditions, at lower altitudes, even this pace would be considered slow. It would not be an exceptionally fast pace for going up these slopes, and yet the image that stays in my memory is of a party coming down quite fast. It is evident that the whole standard of speed is altered. On the ascent, too, I had the sensation of moving about twice as fast as we actually were. I imagine that the whole of life was scaled down, as it were, that we were living both physically and mentally at half, or less than half, the normal rate. However that may be, we had now to descend only 2,000 feet to Camp 4, and with more than three hours daylight left, we supposed we should have no difficulty in reaching our tents before dark. Meditating after the event about the whole of our performance this day, I have often wondered how we should have appeared at various stages to an unfatigued and competent observer. No doubt he would have noted with some misgiving the gradually diminishing pace of the party as it crawled upwards, but he would have been satisfied, I think, that each man had control of his limbs and a sure balance and as we were moving along together over ground where the rope will very easily be caught under the points of projecting rocks and thereby cause inconvenience and delay while it is unhitched, this observer, watching the rope, would have noticed that in fact it almost never was caught up. The party at all events were keeping their form to the extent of managing the rope as it ought to be managed. For a moment, when they were in difficulties after turning back, he might have thought them rather shaky, but even here they were able to pull themselves together and proceed with proper attention and care. Whether he would have noticed any difference when they started off again, I cannot say. A certain impetus of concentration, a gathering of mental and physical energy, a reserve called up from who knows where when they turned to face the descent, had perhaps spent its force and though the party was a stage nearer to the end of the journey, it was also a stage nearer to exhaustion and to that state where carelessness so readily slips in unperceived. It may be supposed we were a degree less alert, all the more because we foresaw no difficulty. We had not exercised the imagination to figure difficulties on the descent, and we now came upon them unexpectedly. 
The fresh snow fallen during the night had so altered appearances that we could not be certain, as we traversed back towards the ridge again, that we were exactly following the line by which we had approached our camp the day before. My impression is that we went too low and missed it. We were soon working along broken ground above a broad snow slope. Fresh snow had to be cleared away alike from protruding rocks where we wished to put our feet and from the old snow where we must cut steps. It was not a difficult place and yet not easy, as the slope below us was dangerous and yet not very steep, not steep enough to be really alarming or specially to warn the climber that a slip may be fatal. It was an occasion when the need for care and attention was greater than obviously appeared, just the sort to catch a tired party off their guard. Perhaps the steps were cut too hastily, or in one way and another were taking small risks that we would not usually take. The whole party would not necessarily have been in grave danger because one man lost his footing, but we were unprepared. When the third man slipped, the last man was moving and was at once pulled off his balance. The second in the party, though he must have checked these two, could not hold them. In a moment, the three of them were slipping down and gathering speed on a slope where nothing would stop them until they reached the plateau of the East Rongbuk Glacier, 3,500 feet below. The leader, for some reason, had become anxious about the party a minute or two earlier, and though he too was moving when the slip occurred and could see nothing of what went on behind him, he was on the alert, warned now by unusual sounds that something was wrong. He at once struck the pick of his axe into the snow and hitched the rope round the head of it. Standing securely, his position was good, and while holding the rope in his right hand beyond the hitch, he was able to press with the other on the shaft of the axe, his whole weight leaning towards the slope so as to hold the pick of the axe into the snow. Even so, it would be almost impossible to check the combined momentum of three men at once. In 99 cases out of 100, either the belay will give or the rope will break. In the still moment of suspense before the matter must be put to the test, nothing further could be done to prevent a disaster one way or the other. The rope suddenly tightened and tugged at the axe head. It gave a little as it gripped the metal like a hawser on a bollard. The pick did not budge. Then the rope came taut between the moving figures, and the rope showed what it was worth. From one of the bodies which had slid and now was stopped proceeded an utterance, not in the best taste, reproaching his fate, because he must now start going uphill again when he should have been descending. The danger had passed. The weight of three men had not come upon the rope with a single jerk. The two lengths between the three as they slipped down were presumably not stretched tight, and the second man had been checked directly below the leader before the other two. Probably he also did something to check those below him, for he was partly held up by projecting rocks and almost at once recovered his footing. We were soon secure again on the mountainside, and, not the least surprising fact, no one had been hurt. I suppose we must all have felt rather shaken by an incident which came so near to being a catastrophe. But a party will not necessarily be less competent or climb worse on that account. 
At all events, we had received a warning and now proceeded with the utmost caution, moving one at a time over the snow-covered ledges. It was slow work. This little distance, which with fair conditions could easily be traversed in a quarter of an hour, must have taken us about five times as long. However, when we reached the ridge and again looked down the snow where we had come up the day before, though it was clear enough we must waste no time, we did not feel greatly pressed. Our old tracks were, of course, covered, and we looked about for a way to avoid this slope but it seemed better to go down by the way we knew, and we were soon busy chipping steps. It was a grim necessity at this hour of the day. I felt one might almost have slipped down checking himself with the axe. We were distinctly tempted, but after all, we were not playing with this mountain. It might be playing with us. There was a clear risk, and we were not compelled to accept it we must keep on slowly cutting our steps. The long toil was shared among us until the slope eased off and we had nothing more to fear. We looked down to the north call below us. No difficulty could stop our descent. We had still an hour of daylight. After all, with ordinary good fortune, we should be back in our tents before dark. I had been aware for some time that Moorshead, though he was going steadily and well, was more tired than the rest of us. His long halt at our high camp can have done him little good. He had not recovered. His strength had just served to keep him up where it was urgently necessary that he should preserve his balance, but it was now exhausted. He had quite come to the end of his resources, and at best he could move downwards a few steps at a time. It was difficult to see what could be done for him. There were places where we might sit down and rest, and we should be obliged not only to stop often for two or three minutes, but also to stay occasionally for perhaps ten minutes or a quarter of an hour. Anything like a longer halt must be avoided if possible, as the air was already cold, and an exhausted man would be particularly sensitive. Probably a longer rest would not have helped him, and we proceeded as best we could so as to avoid delay as much as possible. One of us, and it was usually Norton, gave Moorshead the support of his shoulder and an arm round his waist, while I went first, to pick out exactly the most convenient line, and Somerville was our rear guard in any steeper place. So we crawled down the mountainside in the gathering darkness, until, as I looked back from a few yards ahead, my companions were distinguishable only as vague forms silhouetted against the snow. There were long hours before us yet, and they would be hours of darkness. Occasionally, the flicker of lightning from distant clouds away to the west reminded us that the present calm might sometime be disturbed. Perhaps below on the call, or it might be sooner, the old unfriendly wind would meet us once again. For the present, it was fortunate that the way was easy. The great thing was to keep on the snow, and we found that the edge of rocks by which we had come up, and where it was now so much more difficult to get along, could be avoided almost everywhere. With the same edge of stones to guide us, we could not miss our way, and were still stumbling on in the dark without a lantern when we reached the north call. But we had a lantern with us, and a candle, too, in Somerville's rucksack, 
and we should now require a light. I was reminded once again of the most merciful circumstance, for the air was still so calm that even with matches of a Japanese brand, continually execrated among us, we had no difficulty in lighting our candle. Two hundred yards, or little more in a direct line, now separated us from our tents, with the promise of safety, repose, and warmth in our soft eiderdown bags. Looking back, I never can make out how we came to spend so long in reaching them. We had but to go along the broken saddle of snow and ice where our tracks lay, and then drop down to our camp on the shelf. But the tracks were concealed and not to be found. Crevasses lay under the snow waiting for us. With nothing to guide us, we must proceed cautiously, and once among the confusing shapes of white walls and terraces and monticules and corridors, it was the easiest thing in the world to lose our way. Somerville, who had covered the ground once each way more often than any of us, held the helm, so to speak, against a sea of conflicting opinions. Even he, now our leader, was not always right, and we had more than once to come back along our tracks and take a cast in another direction. To avoid the possible trouble or disaster of having two men at once in a crevasse, we were obliged to keep our intervals on the ropes, so that Moorshead had now to take care of himself. Perhaps the lower altitude had already begun to tell, for he was stronger now, and came along much better than was to be expected. At length we reached a recognizable landmark, a cliff of ice about fifteen feet high, where we had jumped down over a crevasse on our first visit here in order to avoid a disagreeable long step over another crevasse on an alternative route. I was very glad we had come this way rather than the other, for though, looking down at the dimly lit space of snow which was to receive us, I boggled a little at the idea of this leap. The landing place was sure to be soft, and it would be easy not to miss it. I think each of us was just a little relieved when he found himself safely down, and I dimly remember congratulating, not Moorshead, but Longstaff. I had already transposed the name several times, and he now protested, but it made no difference, as I could remember no other. Longstaff became an idée fixe, and though the entity of Moorshead remained unconfused, I did not, for instance, give him Longstaff's beard. He was fixedly Longstaff until the following morning. The agreeable change of finding ourselves together in that curious coin was hardly disturbed by Somerville's remark, We're very near the end of our candle. We felt we were all very near the end of our journey, for we had dimly made out from the higher level we had just quitted the neat rank of our tents still standing on the shelf below and ready to welcome us. We had only to find the rope which had been fixed on the steep slope below us, and we should be at the end of our troubles. But the rope was deeply buried, and we searched in vain, dragging the snow with our picks along the edge of the fall. We were still searching when the last of our candle burnt out. In the end, we must do without the rope and began the abrupt descent tentatively, dubiously, uncertain that we had hit off just the right place. The situation was decidedly disagreeable. Suddenly, someone among us hitched up the rope from under the snow. 
It may be imagined we were not slow to grasp it. The blessed security of feeling the frozen but helpful thing firmly in our hands. We positively made some sort of a noise. Unrecognizable, perhaps, it would have been to sober daylight beings who know how to produce the proper effect. But if a dim bat of the night were asked what this noise resembled, he might have indicated that distantly, but without mistake, it was like a cheer. A few minutes more, and then, then, at 11.30 p.m., and there on the good flat snow as we fumbled at the tent doors, then and there, at last, we began to say, Thank God. Had we known what was yet in store for us, or rather what was not in store, we might have waited a little longer for so emphatic an exclamation. We were in need of food, and no solid food could be eaten until something had been done towards satisfying our thirst. It was not that one felt, at least I did not feel, a desire to drink, but the long effort of the lungs during the day in a rarefied atmosphere where evaporation is so rapid had deprived the body of moisture to such an extent that it was impossible to swallow, for instance, a ration biscuit. We must first melt snow and have water. But where were the cooking pots? We searched the tents without finding a trace of them. Presumably, the porters whom we had expected to find here had taken them down to Camp 3 in error. As we sat slowly unlacing our boots within the tents, it was impossible to believe in this last misfortune. We waited for a brainwave, but no way could be devised of melting the snow without a vessel. Still supperless, we wriggled into our sleeping bags, and then something happened in Norton's head. In his visions of all that was succulent and juicy and fit to be swallowed with ease and pleasure, there had suddenly appeared an ice cream. It was this that he now proposed to us. We had the means at hand to make ice creams, he said. A tin of strawberry jam was opened. Frozen ideal milk was hacked out of another. These two ingredients were mixed with snow, and it only remained to eat the compound. To my companions, this seemed an easy matter. Their appetite for strawberry cream ice was hardly nice to watch. I, too, managed to swallow down a little before the deadly sickliness of the stuff disgusted me. My gratitude to Norton was afterwards cooled by disagreeable sensations. In the last drowsy moments before complete forgetfulness, I was convulsed by shudderings which I was powerless to control. The muscles of my back seemed to be contracted with cramp, and, short of breath, I was repeatedly obliged to raise myself on my elbows and start again that solemn exercise of deep breathing as though the habit had become indispensable. The last stage of our descent to Camp 3 had still to be accomplished on the following morning of May 22nd. I imagined that a fresh man with old tracks to help him might cover the distance from Camp 4 in about an hour and a quarter, but no sign was left of our old tracks, and the snow was deeper here than higher up. Only in the harder substance below the fresh surface could new steps be cut wherever the slope was steep, and as we began to understand that the way would be long and toilsome, another thought occurred to us. Our sleeping bags at Camp 4 would now be required at Camp 3, and porters must be sent to fetch them. Our tracks, therefore, must be made safe for them. 
Half our labor was in hewing so fine a staircase that the porters would be able to go up and down unescorted without danger. The wearisome descent, which began at 6 a.m., continued far into the morning. The sun pierced the vapory mists, and the heat was immoderate now as the cold had been higher up. The fatigued party regarded the conventions until the first man reached the snow at the foot of the final ice slope. There, so far as I could understand, the van became possessed of the idea that it would be more companionable for all to finish together. I found myself deliberately pulled from my steps and slid about 80 feet down the ice until the pick of my axe pulled me up at the foot of the slope. I could have borne the ignominy of my involuntary glissade had I not found Finch at the foot of the slope, taking advantage of my situation with a Kodak. The presence of Finch was easily explained. Reinforcements had arrived at Camp 3 in our absence, and the transport had worked with such wonderful speed that the oxygen cylinders were already in action. Finch, whom we had last heard of in bed with dysentery at the base camp, had shown such energy that he was now testing the oxygen apparatus with Wakefield and Jeffrey Bruce. They were bound for the North Call with a party of porters, so the return of our sleeping bags was easily arranged. The lesser injustices of fate are hard to forgive, and we regretted labor that might have been left to others. However, Wakefield now took us in charge, and at noon we were at Camp 3 once more. Strutt and Morris had come out to meet us. Noel had stayed in camp, and like a tormentor waiting for his disarmed victim, there we found the movie camera and him winding the handle. However, our welcome in camp is a pleasing memory. The supply of tea was inexhaustible. Somerville confesses to having drunk 17 mugfuls. He can hardly have been so moderate. Mooreshead probably needed to drink more than any of us. He ascribed his exhaustion on the mountain to want of liquid, and medical opinion was inclined to agree with the suggestion. However that may be, the night's rest at a lower elevation had largely restored his strength, and Mooreshead arrived at Camp 3 no more fatigued to all appearances than the rest of us. But he bore the marks of his painful ordeal. His condition had made him a prey to the cold and we only began to realize how badly he had been frostbitten as we sat in camp while Wakefield bound up the black swollen fingers. End of Chapter 6, Part 3 Recording by Marnes007, Chicago